episode 291. What are Medicare Advantage plans up to right about now? Today, I speak with Betsy Seals, co-founder of the Rebellus Group. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Medicare Advantage enrollment has nearly doubled over the past decade. It grew 37% from 2016 to 2020. Right now, MA, Medicare Advantage, comprises nearly 40% of the Medicare population, and that number is only expected to grow. So in case you've been out of the loop, at the beginning of 2020, CMS rolled out a third category of these, I'm doing air quotes right now, but you can't see them, chronic supplemental benefits. And these chronic supplemental benefits allow plans to offer basically services to attenuate social determinants of health, you know, to offer stuff like non-emergency transportation, meals, home modifications, that whole list. This is all really part of a broader bipartisan effort to move Medicare from an acute care to a chronic care program. Then Corona. (laughs) So the question I'm kind of wondering about at this juncture is were slash are MA beneficiaries able to maintain their health status better than, say, other plan designs, especially given some of these chronic supplemental benefits, which you'd think would be super helpful in the middle of a pandemic. This should make sense, and it should really be true. At its core, MA is, as John Gorman put it when he was on the show last year, MA is the biggest value-based payment experiment in the universe. And patient outcomes have definitely improved for MA patients over traditional FFS, especially in the South and in other areas rife with, you know, cardiovascular and metabolic disease. So that sounds great. Now let's talk about the cash money denominator in the value equation. Humana reported $1.8 billion in profit for the second quarter. That was nearly double its haul in Q2 2019. So far, 2020 has seen a profit that is a 94.5% increase year over year. Humana's earnings are not an outlier. MA plans across the board did very well, thank you very much, in the middle of a pandemic. Given that MA hasn't actually reduced PMPM costs last time I looked at it. You'd think and hope that the confluence of higher rates and less restrictions on extra benefits should definitely lead to greater scrutiny on the plans by CMS. We'll see what happens. Anyway, it occurred to me that it might be interesting to get a bead on what MA plans themselves have been contemplating and thinking about relative to the supplemental benefits, etc., Today, I speak with Betsy Seals, co-founder of the Rebellus Group. Betsy spent many years working with and for Medicare Advantage plans. I thought Betsy would be the perfect person to talk to, to get a bead on what's happening on the MA front right now. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Betsy Seals, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hi, Stacey. Nice to be here. So we're going to talk about Medicare Advantage plans today, mainly. And Medicare Advantage plans, obviously, I'm assuming most people know what they are. But if you were just going to give like the one sentence, what is an MA plan? Medicare Advantage is essentially Medicare, but in the private private sector. So the same federal dollars 
but hopefully the, with the idea of them being managed better by the private sector and us being able to provide beneficiaries with better care and more benefits. So I am the leader of a Medicare mm-hmm. Advantage plan. What are my core imperatives? You know, like, what do I really care about? What am I looking to achieve? If you are the leader of a Medicare Advantage plan, there are a couple of key things that are, that are really going to be on your mind, right, in terms of plan performance. One of those top things is going to be star ratings because star ratings really impact your, your payment from the federal government. Growth rate certainly is going to be top of mind. You know, what should also be top of mind is how is risk adjustment functioning? One thing that I think that a lot of organizations that are really still working on this are forgetting about is disenrollment rates. How many members are actually leaving the plan, not just how many members are joining the plan each year. And then also member complaints. In my mind, those things really are the top things that any plan leader should be focused on. So star ratings, obviously, that's how they're being evaluated relative to their performance. The growth rate, that's how many new members, I'm assuming you mean by that. Yes. I'm going to set aside how is risk adjustment functioning, but disenrollment rates, obviously, that's your churn. And then member complaints, I'm assuming, is sort of a leading indicator. Like if you're getting too many complaints, you're going to get disenrollment and then you can't grow, you know, so it's something that feeds into the others. It's something that feeds into the others, but it also feeds into other really important metrics. For example, you know, member satisfaction does feed into star ratings. Member complaints that are made directly to CMS do have an impact on, you know, whether or not you're going to receive a compliance notice. So that is a piece that I have seen far too often organizations really not spending enough time on. Like we all want to know why members are leaving. Well, they're telling you. So let's take a look at what they're complaining about and figure out the why behind that eventual disenrollment. Let's go back to star ratings. And one of the things that we had been talking about before that frankly surprised me, one of the measures is engagement. Well, that didn't surprise me, frankly, but... How it was measured certainly did. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So it's an interesting thing. You know, well, star ratings are an interesting and complicated subject for sure. But, you know, I would say the measures aren't specifically around engagement, but then again, they are some of them. So for example, percent of female plan members who had a mammogram or percent of Medicare enrollees who received a flu vaccine. So all of those things really are beneficiary engagement in their healthcare. And this is something that a lot of organizations, Medicare Advantage plans, I should say, struggle with because not all beneficiaries are seeking those routine screenings or are going to their annual wellness visit. So member engagement in their own health care is really key to success in STARS. If we're measuring engagement by how often people show up at their doctor's office, then obviously that's going to have plummeted in a pandemic. Certainly. So I would say that there's not necessarily a measure for how often folks show up at their doctor's office. And then again, there is because you have to go to your doctor's office to get some of these screenings, right? So if we look at the year and, you know, half of your beneficiaries or probably more than half, especially in this vulnerable population, do not go to their doctor for routine screenings, that is going to have a a definitely an impact on beneficiary experience, first of all, but on star ratings. And we also don't know how long, right, that this pandemic will continue. So we might say, well, this will be an outlier year and then things will return to normal. Hopefully, I certainly hope so. But will Medicare beneficiaries really have confidence in terms of going into the doctor's office, you know, early next year or next year at all? I'm not certain that they will. So I think we have to prepare for that and put mechanisms in place to still obtain, first of all, provide care, but then also obtain those metrics that are important. 
Okay, so let's move on to attaining more members. Also interesting, I'm sure, in the middle of a pandemic. But, you know, typically, how is that accomplished? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about what this looks like in a pandemic year. Yeah, so this is really interesting. Interesting (laughs) might be the wrong term. Organizations will say Medicare Advantage plans, all health plans, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars more for a lot of health plans, right, each year to market and enroll new beneficiaries. And of course, those are, you know, through all the typical mechanisms like direct mail, TV, et cetera. What many organizations do not do well is retain those beneficiaries. So we'll talk about that a little bit separately. So this year, what has changed? And in my mind, almost everything has changed, right? So a lot of organizations, for example, are going out with kind of a lifestyle brand. So your imagery may be a beneficiaries bowling or riding horses on the beach. And this is really strongly connected to your brand. This year, you know, nobody's bowling, at least not in California, maybe, maybe in certain states. Very few people are probably riding horses in groups on the beach. So really the messaging in my mind really has to shift. So for example, one of the top plan choice drivers that we see in all the years that I've been in MA has been, is your doctor in the network? But now it's not just, is your doctor in the network? It's, does your plan also offer telehealth? Through that telehealth, can you actually access your PCP or is it an outsourced vendor? So really kind of a mind shift, this AEP, to understanding for this vulnerable population where their mindset is and what are their changed needs based on what's going on in the world from every other year. And AEP stands for? Annual Enrollment Period, which will start on October 15th and run through December 7th. Where do these members come from? Are they new people who are newly 65? Are Medicare Advantage plans stealing from one another or are people from FFS migrating over into MA? The bulk of the market in a lot of service areas is stealing from other organizations. Medicare Advantage beneficiaries have gotten really smart about shopping. So that is certainly a piece of the pie, right? Is doing better than your competition in terms of your benefits, as well as how you're marketing your plan as well as other things like member experience. Then there's kind of another path, which is trying to attract fee-for-service beneficiaries. And that's a huge slice of the pie that everybody's trying to get some of. And then there's that other piece, which is Medicare beneficiaries aging into the program. And those beneficiaries have kind of a different enrollment period. It's you know around their entitlement to A and B, and that is separate from the annual enrollment period. You know, you just said that these enrollees are getting pretty smart about shopping for their benefits. Do you see that MA patients are a little bit more actively engaged and knowledgeable? You know, they're a little bit more health literate maybe than other maybe FFS Medicare enrollees. Yeah. You know, if we think about the population, the younger population in Medicare Advantage at this point, this is a lot of baby boomers, right? So when I first was in Medicare Advantage, it was a very different population. No Medicare Advantage beneficiaries were using a computer. You know, I don't, Facebook wasn't even a thing. Now, when you look at Medicare Advantage beneficiaries and how they're you know, shopping for their plans, how they are requesting, you know, that health plan to contact them. A lot of that is on Facebook. A lot of it is done through the internet. So that landscape has completely changed and it's a much more savvy consumer now than it has been in the past. And I I believe that that trend will continue. Okay. What I'm kind of cutting on to here is that we're, we we have a, a consumer who kind of knows what they're looking for, which is sort of an interesting, and I say this to showcase kind of um, a contrast. A lot of times when people talk about Medicare patients, 
they are treating them as kind of a passive, don't really know what's going on, can't use technology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we'll take anything that they're given. I mean, like there is sort of that, I'm not sure what the right word, a stereotype. That's it. Yep. But it sounds like from what you're saying, that's not the case in many ways. Not for this new generation. When you really look at Medicare beneficiaries aging into the program or that younger subset of beneficiaries, their shopping trends and their consumer expectations are very much the same as yours and mine. It transcends, I think, health plan to what does this cohort want from the healthcare system writ large? And what do they think that good healthcare consists of? I will say, of course, it's not one size fits all. There are different subsets of the population with different needs. For example, the duals market has very different needs than non-duals. Chronic care beneficiaries or beneficiaries in an institutional STIP have very different needs than non-institutional STIP beneficiaries. So I would say that understanding your local market is extremely important. For example, in certain areas of the countries, like we've said, things like is my doctor and network is important. You know, what are the the co-pays of the plan? Do I have the ability to travel, you know, and still obtain services? For some segments of the population that may be worried about putting food on the table, looking at those benefits that are supplemental benefits that are provided by the plan that really address social determinants of health, those things are very important. And those will also really impact that beneficiary's perception of their plan. I'll give a great example. We saw, as we know, a huge decrease of of folks seeking routine care. If you as a health plan decided to, you know, take advantage of CMS's allowance to increase benefits mid-year, and all of a sudden you are providing groceries to beneficiaries who may be homebound, may be dealing with chronic conditions, or have just reached out and you know that that beneficiary is struggling, all of a sudden the beneficiary's perception of you as a health plan is changed completely. Let's just backtrack a sec. You mentioned something very fast, and I just want to make sure that we underline this. You had said that there's a mid-year benefit change, and now plans can offer supplemental benefits. Do you just want to explain like what you mean by that? Like what, what happened? Sure. For the first time, I believe, since I've been in Medicare Advantage, and sometimes it's hard to remember everything that's happened, but CMS has allowed organizations, and they came out end of April with guidance that allowed organizations to increase their benefits mid-year, which never happens. It's always on a calendar year basis. Essentially, you know, they were responding to what was going on with COVID-19 saying, if you're not able to sufficiently care for the changed needs of your beneficiaries, we're giving you a lot of allowance to make modifications to the benefits that you offer. So a lot of innovative organizations did things like meal benefits, right? Because the over 65 or disabled population is at home during this time, certainly for the first you know, portion of this COVID-19 pandemic. Things like offering transportation to needed medical appointments so that beneficiaries are not on a bus or on a train. Some organizations did a great job by providing kind of essential kits with masks and hand sanitizer at a time when those things were not readily available. So there was a lot of allowance to really change the way that we were caring for this population. And a lot of organizations did a great job with taking advantage of those and really acting fast. They really snapped into action. Like this was allowed, like CMS said, okay, you guys, like you can do stuff like this. And and these plans hopped too. Like they spent money. Oh yeah. Some did, but some did not. Some kind of did nothing. And I, I really believe that the data will show that that was 
not a wise decision, we'll say. (laughs) You wonder also if it wasn't a wise decision if you are trying to hold on to an MLR ratio. Makes you wonder whether the CMS change was an effort to give plans something to spend money on if they were not spending money on provider services. But that conspiracy theory said, I think I'm hanging with you, Betsy. The reason that you brought up supplemental benefits in this context is that they could be a member decision-making factor moving forward. Enrollees who recognize that those supplemental benefits are either on the table or could be on the table are going to want them. I believe so. I also believe that perception of the health plan will have changed because of what health plans did or did not do within the middle of this pandemic. So I think that the decisions made during this time with how to increase benefits or how to address you know, the issues going on with your membership will have a really great impact on this next AEP. Beyond attracting new members, I'm assuming the supplemental benefits plans have rolled out also feeds into their customer experience star rating, which I think also had some updates this year, if I'm not mistaken. So one of the really interesting changes recently from CMS is the weighting of beneficiary experience. So member experience measures will account for about one third of star ratings measures for performance year 2020 patient experience with their healthcare providers and the health plan and their perception of their care is more important now than ever before. If a health plan was offering transportation, then I'm also assuming that their star rating for engagement went up because patients could actually make it to the physician, whereas those who didn't have any way to get there did not. Right. All of those things are interrelated. You also look at if a health plan with that holds a high percentage of diabetic members you know, in the middle of the pandemic decided to deliver meals that are designed for that population, that will impact health outcomes as well. So a lot of these things are really interrelated. It's not just going to impact beneficiary perception of their health care, which we know is so important, but it's also really does have an impact on health outcome. You do a survey of Americans and still nobody even understands what a deductible is. You, you know what I mean? So like, do these factors just create even more confusion in the marketplace relative to, do I go to my plan for that? Do I go to my provider for that? Like, what's your advice for these plans to just help their members? I think that there is a real lack of understanding from a lot of organizations around what issues are impacting their actual membership. So there's a lot of great survey data across the U.S. with, you know, 65 and over, But really understanding the demographics and the social determinants of health that are impacting your local landscape, really understanding that data, understanding that data, and then also marrying that with your claims data, understanding really the medical concerns and issues that are facing your membership, the issues that you hold within your own membership, and then designing both retention plans as well as marketing campaigns around of some of that data. I think that that's a real missed opportunity for a lot of organizations, just really not digging in to their local landscape or their actual plan data to understand their membership and the members that are attracted to their health plan. Could you give an example of like somebody who did that really well? One company actually, Anthem, did something really interesting last year and they provided a benefit for service dogs so that you could go in and buy your dog food and different, you know, needed items for that companion dog or that service dog and the health plan paid for that. All of those things are really getting to a core understanding that healthcare is not always related to in-office doctor visits. CMS is creating incentives for the plan to do things along these lines. 
I really do think that CMS is headed in a way to understanding that federal dollars for the Medicare program should not just be sent on doctor's visits or screenings, that there are many other factors that impact the beneficiary and the beneficiary's health, and they're starting to make regulatory changes to address those. Typically, health plans have been basically just a bill payer. You know what I mean? Like, okay, you get a bill from a doctor, you pay the bill, right? I mean, at the, at the simplest level. But it sounds like what's starting to happen with these MA plans is that they are actually now running their own programming. Like they are actually providing, you know, they say that, that only 20% of a, of a patient's health outcomes are driven by like what happens in a clinic. Like 80% of somebody's health outcomes are other things. It sounds like there's starting to be this recognition, you know, rightfully so, because it's been proven out any number of ways that if we really want to legitimately produce better health health outcomes in this country and manage chronic conditions better, which we're doing an abysmal job of, that we really need to address the factors that really impact chronic conditions. Like you can go to the emergency room 95 times, but for your, you know, asthma exacerbation, but if you don't deal with the fact that your house has cockroaches, you're going to go another 95 times at great cost. Sounds like the plans themselves are like actually running these programs as opposed to just paying bills for somebody else to figure it out. I agree. Yeah, I think that there's been a real shift in the term in terms of what we understand now and also what we're able to predict. Again, because of the predictive analytics capabilities that exist now in the world, but in healthcare that didn't exist before. So there are any number of indicators to say, you know, Mrs. Smith is likely to have an avoidable hospital admission or readmission. And so then we intervene with Mrs. Smith and try to find out what the core issue is. And we really think that these things are financially, these are incented by the plans. I mean, and, and I'm saying this for a really specific reason. And, and one of them is that if I'm a fee-for-service plan and I have my profits capped at 20%, then there is an implicit incentive that healthcare costs go up. Because in an absolute sense, 20% of a bigger number is a bigger number, right? So I can make more money if I'm actually paying more hospital bills, assuming, of course, that I have anticipated these bills and raised premiums accordingly. But let's set that complication aside. So if I'm talking about MA plans and they're doing these things with, with social determinants, which are supposed to reduce healthcare spend if they're successful, and they actually do reduce healthcare spend. Do I wind up ultimately losing money? No, actually, not in Medicare Advantage because, you know, we know already hospital admissions are a huge cost driver. Things like managing diabetics before they have an adverse event or, you know, AFib, right, before there's a stroke. All of those things, avoidable, massive healthcare costs are all advantageous to a Medicare Advantage plan in their model. So that is why one of the reasons why there's so much focus on it, so much focus around keeping beneficiaries out of the hospital, avoiding, you know, avoidable admissions and readmissions. That's something you'll hear a lot. Making sure that when a beneficiary does land in the hospital, that they go home and are taking their medications appropriately. That's another huge driver of avoidable readmissions. So all of those things, you know, some of those are very much medical in nature, but a lot of these things do initially start with social determinants of health. So a lot of this sounds like population health management, of course. 
And, you know, there's a lot of hospital organizations, notably Geisinger. You know, you've got even, you know, Mount Sinai in, the, in, in New York City. Like there's, there's a lot of hospitals that are involved with population health management. And there's a lot of them that are starting to get very heavily into managing social determinants of health. Is this something that the MA plan is going to contract with these hospital organizations and, you know, pay them a capitated fee to manage Mrs. Smith and all of her peers? Or is this something that now the plan is competing against providers? I think that the health plan will delegate a lot of those to an expert vendor. In terms of, you know, understanding the social determinants of health facing their population, I think that that a lot is done internally. So internal, you know, predictive analytics and data mining. Um, And a lot of organizations do kind of vend that out as well to an expert company who really specializes in these predictive models. Do you have any advice for providers? The percentage of Medicare beneficiaries who are in Medicare Advantage plans seems to grow every year. So what advice might you have for providers who are dealing with these MA plans who are doing all this stuff with supplemental benefits right now? Like, is there anything that as a provider I should be aware of? You know, I I actually think that this is quite a missed opportunity in terms of provider and plan partnership in a lot of ways. Really making sure that on the provider side that you understand those wraparound benefits and the different services that are available to Mrs. Smith is extremely important. And on the health plan side, making sure that you're communicating with your providers, that they understand those different benefits and services that are available. And if Mrs. Smith needs you know, transportation to her appointment, how can she obtain that? So really, I think more now than ever before, a partnership and communication and education both ways from the health plan to the provider and back is very important and critical for success. If you were just kind of going to summarize, all right, so I'm an MA plan right now. I'm walking into, you know, open enrollment is starting. What should I be doing? And what should I be thinking about? Just kind of like coming out of this pandemic, knowing that now I've got supplemental benefits, which is a new battlefield. I would have a couple of things on my mind you know, on the health plan side. First of all, of course, primarily is going to be your marketing tactics, this AEP. And that is going to roll directly into how are you going to enroll beneficiaries because the face-to-face option is not going to be acceptable for a lot of Medicare Advantage beneficiaries and may not be for agents either. In some places may not even be permitted. So really understanding that the market has shifted and the, the way the beneficiaries enroll this year is going to be very different than it ever has been before. So those two things right off the bat. Then certainly beneficiary retention. This is, again, something that organizations, many organizations really miss the boat on. What is the beneficiary experience once they join the health plan, keeping beneficiaries that you've enrolled and really assisting those beneficiaries in managing their health care in this new world? So, for example, telehealth, right? I mean, obviously, telehealth has just exploded since the COVID-19 pandemic hit the U.S. Some organizations still on the Medicare Advantage side don't offer telehealth. So making it as easy as possible for your beneficiaries to access their health care, removing barriers to care, and as part of that, understanding why your beneficiaries are complaining. You know, it's kind of a 360 view, obtaining your beneficiaries, making sure they have those mechanisms to enroll, then making sure their member experience is positive, reducing access to care issues, and then real-time understanding complaints that are coming in so that you can address them. I mean, my best advice at this point, not knowing what's going to happen right at the end of this year. 
And I think the telehealth comment is really relevant. I am not sure if even providers are recognizing, you know, like I was just talking to someone the other day whose longtime cardiologist decided that she, this particular doctor was not going to do telehealth. And the longtime patient was like, well, I'm going to find another doctor. (laughs) I think that that will be one of the biggest we'll call it a missed opportunity. A lot of organizations, for example, they have an outsourced, you know, teledoc service. Well, that's great if you just need a prescription filled or something, but most people want to see their PCP on their Zoom call. They don't want to see, you know, a doctor they've never met before that doesn't necessarily understand all the issues that they are dealing with and there's no relationship. So to me, that's critically important. Now, does it matter to MA plans if CMS doesn't give a code? For example, like, is there enough value-based incentive for these MA plans that regardless of what CMS chooses to pay for or not pay for, they could still move forward with a reimbursement model for providers to offer telehealth? Yes. And there have been some changes that, you know, for certain risk adjustments that can be done in telehealth and certainly certain appointments will, you know, impact star ratings. Yes, there absolutely is enough incentive for Medicare Advantage plans to make telehealth a priority. So just another incentive for providers to make sure that they have that capability, it sounds like. Absolutely, from my perspective, especially considering that a lot of providers are struggling at this point because of the lack of routine care. So in my mind, it, it's, it would be on the forefront of my practice or strategy as a provider. But again, that's surprisingly to me, not what we're seeing across the country. Yeah, right. But is there anything that I neglected to ask you that you think is important to mention? You know, we were already kind of in the midst of a change happening in healthcare with the introduction of a lot of different capabilities, right? AI, predictive analytics, understanding of social determinants of health. And then we've been hit with this massive shift, you know, in the delivery of healthcare due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think one thing that, that shouldn't be overlooked is that we really have an opportunity to dig into the data that is present in this year that we wouldn't have had before. And with this new data, all of these new data sets and pieces of data that we would never have had before, we really need to ask ourselves, you know, some tough tough questions and challenge what has been always and kind of accepted in order to understand what we should do to improve the healthcare system. Because this year is such an outlier, it's a good comparator to test assumptions. Yes. I mean, a lot of our healthcare delivery is based on things that we know based on beneficiary behavior, right? And a lot of the things we do are to change beneficiary behavior, impact beneficiary behavior. But now all of a sudden, in the course of basically a month, right at at the beginning of the year, all those indicators on the way that beneficiaries typically behave have changed. What's one thing that you're thinking? Just the fact that we can do so much more healthcare virtually now. I think that's one huge thing. Um, But I also think that the way the beneficiaries are going to shop, like we talked about earlier, will have changed for this AEP. And will that ever go back to pre-COVID? I'm not sure. I don't know that the healthcare system or the delivery of healthcare will ever return exactly to the way it was before because we have fast forwarded in the evolution of healthcare. What's a data point that you could dig into that 2020 is going to be a comparator that you could gain insight from? You know, for example, certain routine care that hasn't happened and what has been the outcome would be a good example. If, you know, plan A decided to deliver meals and plan B didn't, how did that have a meaningful outcome on Mrs. Smith's diabetes? Betsy, could you just give a little bit of background on, you know, who is the Rebellus group? 
The Rebellus Group is kind of what we consider to be a new type of firm. We're there to really see, okay, is there an innovative approach to fix the root cause that is impacting this issue? And is there a data solution or a system solution to impact this issue? So really what we view as a new lens on healthcare and a much more innovative and technology-driven approach. And where can people go if they are interested in learning more about the Rebellus Group? Rebellusgroup.com. Betsy Seals, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of All of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.